Section 60 of the History of Chemistry. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Lisa McCleskey. The History of Chemistry by Thomas Thompson. Volume 2, Chapter 4, Part 6. There is another branch of investigation intimately connected with analytical chemistry, the improvements in which have been attended with great advantage, both to mineralogists and chemists. I mean the use of the blowpipe to make a kind of miniature analysis of minerals in the dry way, so far at least as to determine the nature of the constituents of the mineral under examination. This is attended with many advantages, as a preliminary to a rigid analysis by solution. By informing us of the nature of the constituents, it enables us to form a plan of the analysis beforehand, which, in many cases, saves the trouble and the tediousness of two separate analytical investigations. For when we set about analyzing a mineral, of the nature of which we are entirely ignorant, two separate sets of experiments are in most cases indispensable. We must examine the mineral in the first place to determine the nature of its constituents. These being known, we can form a plan of an analysis by means of which we can separate and estimate in succession the amount of each constituent of the mineral. Now a judicious use of the blowpipe often enables us to determine the nature of the constituents in a few minutes and thus saves the trouble of the preliminary analysis. The blowpipe is a tube employed by goldsmiths in soldering. By means of it, they force the flame of a candle or lamp against any particular point which they wish to heat. This enables them to solder trinkets of various kinds without affecting any other part except the portion which is required to be heated. Kronstadt and Angstrom first thought of applying this little instrument to the examination of minerals. A small fragment of the mineral to be examined not nearly so large as the head of a pin, was put upon a piece of charcoal, and the flame of a candle was made to play upon it by means of a blowpipe, so as to raise it to a white heat. They observed whether it decrepitated, or was dissipated, or melted, and whatever the effect produced was, they were enabled from it to draw consequences respecting the nature of the mineral under examination. The importance of this instrument struck Bergman, and induced him to wish for a complete examination of the action of the heat of the blowpipe upon all different minerals, either tried per se upon charcoal or mixed with various fluxes. For three different substances had been chosen as fluxes, namely carbonate of soda, borax, and biphosphate of soda, or at least what was in fact an equivalent for this last substance, ammoniophosphate of soda, or mycocosmic alt at that time extracted from urine. This salt is a compound of one integrant particle of phosphate of soda and one integrant particle of phosphate of ammonia. When heated before the blowpipe, it fuses, and the water of crystallization, together with the ammonia, are gradually dissipated, so that at last nothing remains but biphosphate of soda. These fluxes have been found to act with considerable energy on most minerals. The carbonate of soda readily fuses with those that contain much silica, while the borax and biphosphate of soda act most powerfully on the bases, not sensibly affecting the silica, 
which remains unaltered in the fused bead. A mixture of borax and carbonate of soda upon charcoal, in general, enables us to reduce the metallic oxides to the state of metals, provided we understand the way of applying the flame properly. Bergman employed Gahn, who was at that time his pupil, and whose skill he was well acquainted with, to make the requisite experiments. The result of these experiments was drawn up into a paper which Bergman sent to Baron Born in 1777, and they were published by him at Vienna in 1779. This valuable publication threw a new light upon the application of the blowpipe to the assaying of minerals, and for everything new which it contained, Bergman was indebted to Gahn, who had made the experiments. John Gottlieb Gahn, the intimate friend of Bergman and of Scheele, was one of the best informed men, and one whose manners were the most simple, unaffected, and pleasing of all the men of science with whom I ever came in contact. I spent a few days with him at Fallon in 1812, and they were some of the most delightful days that I ever passed in my life. His fund of information was inexhaustible, and was only excelled by the charming simplicity of his manners, and by the benevolence and goodness of heart which beamed in his countenance. He was born on the 17th of August, 1745, at the Waxna Ironworks in South Helsingland, where his father, Hans Jacob Gahn, was treasurer to the government of Stora Copperberg. His grandfather, or great-grandfather, he told me, had emigrated from Scotland, and he mentioned several families in Scotland to which he was related. After completing his school education at Westras, he went in the year 1760 to the University of Uppsala. He had already shown a decided bias toward the study of chemistry, mineralogy, and natural philosophy, and like most men of science in Sweden, where philosophical instrument makers are scarcely to be found, he had accustomed himself to handle the different tools and to supply himself in that manner with all the different pieces of apparatus which he required for his investigations. He seems to have spent nearly ten years at Uppsala, during which time he acquired a very profound knowledge in chemistry, and made various important discoveries which his modesty or his indifference to fame made him allow others to pass as their own. The discovery of the rhomboidal nucleus of carbonate of lime in a six-sided prism of that mineral which he let fall and which was accidentally broken, constitutes the foundation of Howey's system of crystallization. He communicated the fact to Bergman, who published it as his own in the second volume of his Hupuscula, without any mention of Gon's name. The earth of bones had been considered as a peculiar simple earth, but Gon ascertained by analysis that it was a compound of phosphoric acid and lime, and this discovery he communicated to Scheele, who, in his paper on floor spar, published in 1771, observed, in the 17th section in which he is describing the effect of phosphoric acid on floor spar, it has lately been discovered that the earth of bones or of horns is calcareous earth combined with phosphoric acid. In consequence of this remark, in which the name of Gon does not appear, it was long supposed that Scheele, and not Gon, was the author of this important discovery. It was during this period that he demonstrated the metallic nature of manganese, and examined the properties of the metal. 
This discovery was announced as his, at the time, by Bergman, and was almost the only one of the immense number of new facts which he had ascertained that was publicly known to be his. On the death of his father, he was left in rather narrow circumstances, which obliged him to turn his immediate attention to mining and metallurgy. To acquire a practical knowledge of mining, he associated with the common miners and continued to work like them till he had acquired all the practical dexterity and knowledge which actual labor could give. In 1770, he was commissioned by the College of Mines to institute a course of experiments with a view to improve the method of smelting copper at Fallon. The consequence of this investigation was a complete regeneration of the whole system, so as to save a great deal both of time and fuel. Sometime after, he became a partner in some extensive works at Stora Copperberg, where he settled as a superintendent. From 1770, when he first settled at Fallon, down to 1785, he took a deep interest in the improvement of the chemical works in that place and neighborhood. He established manufactories of sulfur, sulfuric acid, and red ochre. In 1780, the Royal College of Mines, as a testimony of their sense of the value of Gahn's improvements, presented him with a gold medal of merit. In 1782, he received a royal patent as mining master. In 1784, he was appointed assessor in the Royal College of Mines, in which capacity he officiated as often as his other vocations permitted him to reside in Stockholm. The same year he married Anna Maria Bergstrom, with whom he enjoyed for 31 years a life of uninterrupted happiness. By his wife, he had a son and two daughters. In the year 1773, he had been elected chemical stipendiary to the Royal College of Mines, and he continued to hold this appointment till the year 1814. During the whole of this period, the solution of almost every difficult problem remitted to the college devolved upon him. In 1795, he was chosen a member of the committee for directing the general affairs of the kingdom. In 1810, he was made one of the committee for the general maintenance of the poor. In 1812, he was elected an active associate of the Royal Academy for Agriculture, and in 1816, he became a member of the committee for organizing the plan of a mining institute. In 1818, he was chosen a member of the Committee of the Mint, but from this situation he was shortly after, at his own request, permitted to withdraw. His wife died in 1815, and from that period his health, which had never been robust, visibly declined. Nature occasionally made an effort to shake off the disease, but it constantly returned with increasing strength, until, in the autumn of 1818, the decay became more rapid in its progress and more decided in its character. He became gradually weaker, and on the 8th of December, 1818, died without a struggle and seemingly without pain. Ever after the experiments on the blowpipe which Gahn performed at the request of Bergman, his attention had been turned to that piece of apparatus, and during the course of a long life, he had introduced so many improvements that he was enabled, by means of the blowpipe, to determine in a few minutes the constituents of almost any mineral. 
He had gone over almost all the mineral kingdom and determined the behavior of almost every mineral before the blowpipe, both by itself and when mixed with the different fluxes and reagents which he had invented for the purpose of detecting the different constituents. But from his characteristic unwillingness to commit his observations and experiments to writing, or to draw them up into a regular memoir, had not Brasilius offered himself as an assistant, they would probably have been lost. By his means, a short treatise on the blowpipe, with minute directions how to use the different contrivances which he had invented, was drawn up and inserted into the second volume of Brasilius's chemistry. Brasilius and he afterwards examined all the minerals known, or at least which they could procure, before the blowpipe, and the result of the whole constituted the materials of Brasilius's treatise on the blowpipe, which has been translated into German, French, and English. It may be considered as containing the sum of all the improvements which Gahn had made on the use of the blowpipe, together with all the facts that he had collected respecting the phenomena exhibited by minerals before the blowpipe. It constitutes an exceedingly useful and valuable book, and ought to make a part of the library of every analytical chemist. Dr. Wollaston had paid as much attention to the blowpipe as gone, and had introduced so many improvements into its use, that he was able, by means of it, to determine the nature of the constituents of any mineral in the course of a few minutes. He was fond of such analytical experiments, and was generally applied to by every person who thought himself possessed of a new mineral, in order to be enabled to state what its constituents were. The London mineralogist, if the race be not extinct, must sorely feel the want of the man to whom they were in the habit of applying on all occasions, and to whom they never applied in vain. Dr. William Hyde Wollaston was the son of the Reverend Dr. Wollaston, a clergyman of some rank in the Church of England, and possessed of a competent fortune. He was a man of abilities, and rather eminent as an astronomer. His grandfather was the celebrated author of The Religion of Nature Delineated. Dr. William Hyde Wollaston was born about the year 1767, and was one of fifteen children who all reached the age of manhood. His constitution was naturally feeble, but by leading a life of the strictest sobriety and abstemiousness, he kept himself in a state fit for mental exertion. He was educated at Cambridge, where he was at one time a fellow. After studying medicine, by attending the hospitals and lectures in London, and taking his degree of doctor at Cambridge, he settled at Bury St. Edmunds, where he practiced as a physician for some years. He then went to London, became a fellow of the Royal College of Physicians, and commenced practitioner in the metropolis. A vacancy occurring in St. George's Hospital, he offered himself for the place of physician to that institution, but another individual, whom he considered his inferior in knowledge and science, having been preferred before him, he threw up the profession of medicine altogether, and devoted the rest of his life to scientific pursuits. His income, in consequence of the large family of his father, was of necessity small, in order to improve it, he turned his thoughts to the manufacture of platinum, in which he succeeded so well that he must have, by means of it, realized considerable sums. 
it was he who first succeeded in reducing it into ingots in a state of purity and fit for every kind of use. It was employed, in consequence, for making vessels for chemical purposes, and it is to its introduction that we are to ascribe the present accuracy of chemical investigations. It has been gradually introduced into the sulfuric acid manufactories as a substitute for glass retorts. Dr. Wollaston had a particular turn for contriving pieces of apparatus for scientific purposes. His reflecting goniometer was a most valuable present to mineralogists, and it is by its means that crystallography has acquired the great degree of perfection which it has recently exhibited. He contrived a very simple apparatus for ascertaining the power of various bodies to refract light. His camera lucida furnished those who were ignorant of drawing with a convenient method of delineating natural objects. His periscopic glasses must have been found useful, for they sold rather extensively, and his sliding rule for chemical equivalence furnished a ready method for calculating the proportions of one substance necessary to decompose a given weight of another. Dr. Wollaston's knowledge was more varied and his taste less exclusive than any other philosopher of his time, except Mr. Cavendish. But optics and chemistry are the two sciences which lie under the greatest obligations to him. His first chemical paper on urinary calculi at once added a vast deal to what had been previously known. He first pointed out the constituents of the mulberry calculi, showing them to be composed of oxalate of lime and animal matter. He first distinguished the nature of the triple phosphates. It was he who first ascertained the nature of the cystic oxides and of the chalk stones, which appear occasionally in the joints of gouty patients. To him we owe the first demonstration of the identity of galvanism and common electricity, and the first explanation of the cause of the different phenomena exhibited by galvanic and common electricity. To him we are indebted for the discovery of palladium and rhodium, and the first account of the properties and characters of these two metals. He first showed that oxalic acid and potash unite in three different proportions, constituting oxalate, binoxalate, and quadroxalate of potash. Many other chemical facts, first ascertained by him, are to be found in the numerous papers of his scattered over the last 40 volumes of the Philosophical Transactions, and perhaps not the least valuable of them is his description of the mode of reducing platinum from the raw state and bringing it into the state of an ingot. Dr. Wollaston died in the month of January 1829 in consequence of a tumor formed in the brain near, if I remember right, the thalami nervosum opticorum. There is reason to suspect that this tumor had been some time in forming. He had, without exception, the sharpest eye that I have ever seen. He could write with a diamond upon glass in a character so small that nothing could be distinguished by the naked eye but a ragged line. Yet when the letters were viewed through a microscope, they were beautifully regular and quite legible. He retained his senses to almost the last moment of his life, when he lay apparently senseless, and his friends were anxiously solicitous whether he still retained his understanding, he informed them, by writing, 
that his senses were still perfectly entire. Few individuals ever enjoyed a greater share of general respect and confidence, or had fewer enemies, than Dr. Wollaston. He was at first shy and distant, and remarkably circumspect, but he grew insensibly more and more agreeable as you got better acquainted with him, till at last you formed for him the most sincere friendship, and your acquaintance ended in the warmest and closest attachment. End of section 60